Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. More than ever, people are desperate to find meaning in their daily work. As one young entrepreneur puts it very well, if my faith really matters, then it has got to matter for my work. If my faith really matters, then it's got to matter for my work. I like to suggest that one of the main reasons why this is is the prevailing view and experience of work as being mindless, exhausting, necessary, but demeaning and oppressive. By work, I do not mean paid employment necessarily, but also unpaid, unrecognized, volunteering work, like caring for your grandparents, caring for your children, caring for your grandchildren, raising your children, household chores, voluntary Uh, community work, and so on and so forth. As a Christian trying to find purpose and meaning in your work, you might find yourself wrestling with the following range of sentiments. Being faithful to God in my work perhaps looks like furthering social justice in the world. Being faithful to God in my work may mean to share the gospel with everyone I come across. Being faithful to God in my work, I think it's about producing excellent work, producing beautiful work. Perhaps being faithful to God in my work is by engaging and influencing culture. Being faithful to God in my work is being a witness for Him through my life, whether it rains, hails, or shines. Perhaps being faithful to God in my work means to use every gift that he has given to me and use it for his glory. Being faithful to God in my work, I think, is about making as much money as I can so that I can be as generous with what he blesses me with. So a range of sentiments right there. And you might find that some of these sentiments uh, don't complement with each other. Um, So, While there's been a proliferation of materials and organizations uh, dedicated to helping Christians integrate their faith and work, based on these sentiments, it is still a very complex field to navigate through. The answers to how we are to be faithful to God in in our work, how we are to glorify God through work, are not always clear. But as Keller points out, faithful work requires the will, the emotions, the soul, and the mind as we think out and live out the implications of our beliefs on the canvas of our daily work. So we need to make a start somewhere from wherever we are and whatever stage of life we're at. It's never too late to wrestle with how faith and work integrate. With this in mind, over the next nine weeks, we're going to resume a sermon series we began last year exploring this very topic of faith-work integration. It is based on a book by R. Paul Stevens, Work Matters, Lessons from Scripture, in which he gives an introduction to a biblical theology of work through the lens of 20 biblical accounts from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible begins with God, the first and finest worker in the universe, busy, and reveling in creating his masterpiece. Work was not beneath God, 
And this notion is highly radical, as David Jensen, a theologian, notes. God does not sit enthroned in heaven, removed from work, willing things into existence by divine fiat. Unlike the gods of the Greco-Roman mythologies who absolve themselves of work, dining on nectar and ambrosia in heavenly rest and contemplation, the biblical God works. God is depicted as a worker not just in Genesis, but throughout the scripture. Jesus, God in the flesh, came as a carpenter. That is why work, not just faith, matters, because work is ordained by God rather than the result of the fall. And then we read in Genesis that God then makes human beings in his likeness. In the context of Genesis, an implication of being made in God's likeness, or one of the ways we reflect God's glory, is through work. Notice God's immediate instruction to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And in Genesis 2.15, where God uh, places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Work was part of paradise. Yeah, work was part of paradise. Yes, sin has and can distort work in, uh, sin has and can distort work, but work in and of itself is not a necessary evil or a demeaning necessity. Jesus becoming flesh underscores the importance of the material world. And that includes work, even though it is tainted by sin. Keller explains or captures this tension very well. He writes, work is an indispensable component in a meaningful human life. It is a supreme gift from God and one of the things that gives our lives purpose, but it must play its proper role, subservient to God. Work is not all there is to life. You will not have a meaningful life without work, but you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life, even if that work is church ministry, because by doing so, you create an idol that rivals God. Your relationship with God It's the most important foundation of your life. And indeed, it keeps all the other factors. Work, friendships, and family, leisures, and pleasures from becoming so important to you that they become addicting and distorted. Now, for those of you who are part of Windsor Road, this approach and understanding of work is nothing new. We've been talking about it for years as part of our vision as a whole life discipleship church in which everything we have, every blessing we have, is understood to be gifts from God to be consecrated, to be stewarded for the spread of his love, his joy, his peace, his justice, and hope in our front lines and wherever God has placed us. They're conduits for blessing others. They're conduits for the common good and to bring nothing less than foretastes of the kingdom of God into reality. So these are the assumptions upon which the series is based. So, so far we've looked at good work, 
degraded work and virtuous work. This morning, we're going to look at vocational work. What is vocational work? First, the word vocation itself. The Latin word from which we get vocation means calling, calling. Now, prior to Martin Luther, or prior to the Reformation, a vocation was considered a special calling from God. And those who had vocations were priests, monks, or nuns. But Luther argued against this, uh, this view, saying that all Christians, not just those performing religious work, had a calling, had a vocation. And not only that, that every type of work undertaken by Christians that's connected to one's daily life and not forbidden by Scripture can be understood as vocations. This insight was rooted in his, in his uh, doctrine of justification by faith, that there was no ethical or moral differentiation between, or value, I should say, between church work and non-church work. That is how vocation has, be, has often come to mean simply a job in our, in, our, in our day and age. It's largely because of Martin Luther. You know, what's your vocation? What's your job? But that is a departure from the original meaning of the word that a, a job is a vocation only if someone, that is God, calls you to do it. And so you do it for him rather than for yourself. So in other words, vocation is first and foremost not so much what you do, but more about responding to God who calls you. Yeah? It's not so much about what you do as about responding to the living God who calls you. We live out our vocation in relation to God not our employer. So let's look briefly at the life of Joseph in Genesis to illustrate this. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was his favorite because he was the child of his beloved wife, Rachel, who died after giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, some 16 years later after Joseph was born. Joseph was the kid that repeatedly, repeatedly got away with things. So you might have siblings like that in your family. Remember, remember what, what that made you feel, how that made you feel? Well, his brothers, well, hated him. They would seethe with anger at the, at the mere sight of this spoiled brat, dreaming away while they are running around in T-shirts and jeans, dirty jeans, working their butts off for their father. One day, Jacob sends Joseph to check up on his brothers, and in their jealousy and fit of resentment, they hatch up a plan to kill him. Can you imagine that? They were so enraged that they wanted to kill their own flesh and blood. They strip him of his coat, toss him into a well to die before deciding to sell him to some traders who were on their way to Egypt. Joseph in Egypt is sold as a slave, to, and, and then he ended up working uh, at Potiphar's house, an official of Pharaoh. 
Despite his unimaginable pain and confusion, Joseph continues to place his trust in God and lives uprightly. Potiphar is struck by Joseph's godly character and leadership skills. So he wastes no, no time in appointing Joseph to be in charge of his household. And that's a very significant appointment, placing a slave in charge of your household. Just when Joseph thought things were looking up, in comes Mrs. Potiphar, who tries to seduce him, but he rejects her advances repeatedly, citing his loyalty to his owner, Mr. Potiphar, but also to God as the reasons why he will not cave into her repeated demands to have sex with her. As the saying goes, hell is no fury like a woman's scorn. Mr. Po Mrs. Potiphar falsely accuses Joseph of sexual assault, and Joseph is thrown into jail unjustly. While in jail, Joseph makes a deep impression on the prison warden. He doesn't allow what had happened to him to, to, to affect him, to embitter him. He just carries on living, Car carries on doing what he does, carries on living for God, as it were. And something about Joseph, just like Mr. Potiphar, something about Joseph's character and leadership skill made a deep impression on the prison warden. And in response, he appoints him. He puts him in charge of all the other prisoners. That's pretty risky because if you place the wrong guy in that position, he could cause a riot, a mutiny. But he trusted Joseph explicitly. But while in prison, Joseph discovers that God has gifted him as well with the power to interpret dreams. And this would become not only his ticket out of prison, but his rise to the second highest position in Egypt. Stevens writes, in this role, he saves the Egyptian nation and saves even his own family. Joseph is a stunning example of a full-time servant of God in a so-called secular situation. Further, he performs full-time ministry without receiving a specific personal call by God, yet he is truly living out his calling in every sense of the word. He tells his brothers, after revealing his identity and extending complete forgiveness to them in Genesis chapter 45, verses 5 and 8, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So then it was not you who sent me here. You're not responsible for where I'm at in life. God is. God had a hand in his, or at least, at the very least, Joseph was saying that God redeemed your ungodly deeds. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So with the benefit of hindsight, it appears that jo Joseph recognizes the hand of God upon his entire life. As a young boy working for his father, tending the flocks with his brothers, as a slave working for Mr. Potiphar, as a prisoner working for the prison warden, and finally, as Pharaoh's 2IC, doing God's work in a completely secular context. Quoting Stevens again, vocation is much more than simply working. Vocation is much more than simply doing a job. 
It is the summons of God to belong to Him first and foremost, and then to live God's ways and to do God's work in the world. And we see Joseph clearly illustrating this point. But it is not just Joseph who has received this vocation, but I'm here to tell you that every single one of us, whether you're here in person or watching online, every single one of us has received this vocation as well. John, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Those are very powerful words. You'll do well to reflect on that. Jesus said, as the Father has commissioned me to do what I'm doing, I am sending you. I am commissioning you to do God's work. And he does not mean God's word work in a church context. God's work, full stop. Whatever that looks like, whatever shape that takes, in whatever context that may happen in. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, Peter, in your role and in your profession as a psychiatrist. That changes everything, doesn't it? Doesn't it? All of you, whatever your professions are, Jesus has sent me. I am I'm living out my vocation in relation to God, not in relation to Queensland Health, who may be your employer. And this vocation is often lived, unless we get, you know, grandiose ideas about, ooh, yes, God has called me to do this and the other. This vocation very often is lived out in very ordinary and mundane circumstances. Ask grandparents, well, that's pretty mundane. Yeah, yeah, you love your grandchildren, it's great, it's fantastic. But it can be mundane. Ask parents, well, changing nappies, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's nothing wonderful about it. It's mundane. It's ordinary. Vocational work is not always exciting. In fact, it can be very challenging, as we saw in Joseph's life. But he yearned to glorify God through them, notwithstanding his poor attempts at this as a brash 17-year-old. It didn't matter what work he did whether working for Mr. Potiphar, working for for the prison warden, or working for Pharaoh himself, his attitude was constant in in all these situations. He didn't, you know, all of a sudden change and become more hardworking and more presentable and more diligent when he started working for Pharaoh because it was a high position. He was the same. He was faithful working for Mr. Potiphar. He was faithful, equally faithful working for the prison warden, and he was equally faithful when he served a Pharaoh. It didn't matter what work he did. All he cared about was that he was faithful in his service and obedience to God in his work by using the gifts God had given him, making the most of the opportunities presented to him, irrespective of his personal circumstances. Linda Pecor, an advocate of faith work integration, reflects, God calls... And we respond by serving God where God has placed us, be it as a student or teacher, a mother or artist, a pastor or plumber. In that sense, our task is not to find a Christian calling, 
but to hear Christ's call and thus to shape our work into a Christian calling. We keep in mind that as God has called us to use our energies to transform the world, God also promises to provide gifts and opportunities and will equip us for the work by His Spirit. Human vocation or vocational work is an abiding in God and having God abide in us. Another aspect of vocational work is that it is often not the result of an audible instruction from God, but something we stumble across, something offered to us. Sometimes it is a close friend, a mentor, or a stranger even, who points out the obviousness of what we should be doing. Sometimes it is a door that opens. Sometimes it is a door that closes. And when a door closes, it is worthwhile to remember that much can be, cl- can be gleaned from a door that, close, that closes as much as a door that opens. Through it all, we must learn to discern God's will. We must learn to listen to God's still small voice by listening to ourselves or by listening to others that God has blessed us with, mentors, loved ones, our partners, our, our spouses. Parker Parma writes, vocation does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening, listening to the right, right voice, not our society, peer pressure, our ego, or self-interest. I must listen to my life and try to understand what it is truly about, quite apart from what I would like it to be about. Or my life will never represent anything real in the world, no matter uh, how earnest my intention. So, so so far we've established that vocation is responding primarily to who, to God who calls us. As a general principle, all of us, already called by God. We all, we've, all of us have already received a call from God, so we don't necessarily need to pray, God, what is your calling on my life? All of us have been called. But in another sense, it is quite possible that God has specific assignments and tasks for us to perform, like Jonah, whom God called and led to the city of Nineveh at a particular time in his life. Jeremiah was set apart by God to be a prophet. The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 3, at a a particular point, at a particular place in time, set apart Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel in in Asia Minor. So how do we know? So this raises a question. How do we know the assignment, the work that God is calling us to? And let me share some wisdom from Timothy Keller. And to get a clearer sense of what that work might be, what the vocational work that God has set you aside or equipped you for or to move in a certain direction, he suggests that an alignment of the following three factors. The first is affinity. You want it, you feel it, and you're drawn to it, whatever this thing is. You want it, you feel it, and you're drawn to this particular thing. Look at concrete needs of the world around you and asks, 
What human need do you vibrate to? What human needs do you, that sparks an interest? What human needs move you? Pastor and novelist Frederick Buchner wrote, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I like that. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Keller suggests that this is where you start rather than your spiritual gifts or rather than assessing, doing, doing a, a, a survey on what your gifts might be and what your talents might be. Start by looking at the, world's, uh, the needs of the world around you. Because if you start with spiritual gifts, it's more about you than the world. In addition, our self-knowledge, he argues, is limited. Yeah? How many times have you surprised yourselves in terms of your abilities? You thought you couldn't do something, but when you gave it a go, when you stepped out, because maybe because it was to fill a position for somebody who was on maternity leave. You never wanted the job, you never wanted the role, but an opportunity arose, and you had to fill that role. And then you flourished in it. And then you reflect on it and go, I never thought that I could have done that or could do that in a million years. So you can see where Timothy Keller is coming from. So if you start purely on the basis, start pursuing or start uh, gr trying to grasp what that vocational work that God has set you apart for might be, and you start with yourself, you might go, no, no, I, I don't think that's for me. I don't think that's for me. I don't think that's for me because I'm no good at that. Yeah? So start with, with the needs of the world. Don't think about whether you can do the job, but look at the needs around the world. Look at the needs in your neighborhood. Look at the needs in your city, in your community. What moves you? What draws you? What breaks your heart? Bob Pierce, the found, founder of World Vision International, a Christian humanitarian organization that's touched millions of, world, uh, millions of people around the world, used to say, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And he was drawn to helping the hungry, the homeless, and orphans. The second factor is ability, your abilities, your skills, spiritual gifts, or your lack of. So that's instructional as well. Your deficiency, what you're not good at is as instructional as what you're good at. What am I good at? Uh, what do people say I'm good at or effective in? What has been the most consistent feedback I've received about what I've done well or what I do well in? Right? Be attentive to the voice of others in this regard. What are they saying? What do they see? And parents can play a very important role, and grandparents can play a very important role in helping uh, their children and their grandchildren in this area. And we will look more in specifically into spiritual gifts next week. In fact, there's going to be a test uh, that you can do, a questionnaire that you can, uh, that you can do. It's easy to, get an op uh, to, to, to help get a sense of uh, what your spiritual gifts might be. You often discover your ability, your gifts, your deficiency, uh, here again, by doing things. You don't work it out purely as an intellectual exercise. You actually do things. In, 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 uh, 
in the event of serving, in the course of doing something, in the course of, of, of uh, volunteering for something, you get to do something. And in the course of that, you work out. You, you become more aware, okay, I'm, I'm really good at this. Oh, I really suck at this. Or what I thought I was good at, my colleague uh, had the courage and love to tell me I'm not really good at it. That, that was a good, painful piece of self-awareness. So self-awareness is very, very important. But you discover your abilities not by sitting on your backside ruminating what they are. You, you often discover your abilities and your gifts by doing something, by doing something. Now, we will do well to remember that abilities are inborn and developed at the same time. For instance, uh, I believe I have pastoral gifts, but I've also developed these skills, improved these skills uh, through life's experience, but also through some intentional further training. You cannot improve on abilities you do not have. If you don't have them, you don't have them. You can't pray for them. You can't develop what you don't have. Now, I don't know whether this is true. I think it's fairly true. Some of you who are trained in, the, in music, you might be able to confirm this. I understand that if you're tone deaf, while you can hear music perfectly, it is virtually impossible for you to learn how to sing. Is that correct? No? Alicia is not? Yeah, that's what I've read. I didn't know that. I thought tone deaf meant someone who cannot hear music, but I've, I've, I've read up on it, on it. A person who's tone deaf can actually hear the music, but he just, the person just cannot. Yeah, there's a mismatch between what he's hearing and what he's able to produce through his vocal or her vocal cords. So if you're tone deaf, I have bad news for you. I don't know if you can, if you can, if you can uh, 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 audition for, for Australia's Got Talent. Might not be a good idea to audition for Australia's Got Talent. Lastly, opportunity. That's the third factor. What doors of opportunities are opening up for you? The manner in which these opportunities present themselves can, can be indicators of God's leading, you know, especially if they're miraculous opportunities opening up. You think, I don't know how I even got that job, or I don't even know how I ended up in this. It's just really remarkable. Sometimes opportunity is, is where you, you need to start, is where you can start. In the context of the church, find the jobs that need to be done. Help out and do them. Don't begin with your affinity necessarily. Don't begin with your ability necessarily. If you do, you may miss latent affinities or abilities that you know very little about. Here's the last piece of advice from Cara Martin in her book, Workship. Quote, if you're still unsure what your special call might be, then continue doing what you are doing, but invest in it with all the love, service, and hope you can give as if you were working for God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Let me repeat that. If you're still unsure what your special call might be, what your special vocational work might be, then continue doing what you are presently doing, but invest in it. Do it with all of your heart. Do it with all of the blood, the service, and the hope you can give as if you were working for God. So your application this week is essentially looking at affinity, those three factors, 
Think about your affinities. Think about your abilities. Think about the door of opportunities that may have opened in the past or that are, that are opening out before you. And in that process, listen and discern what God might be saying to you in terms of your next vocational work. Amen. Let us pray. And I want us, uh, I'm going to pray out a prayer crafted by Kara Martin. Would you please bow your hearts and heads with me? Dear Lord, you see us and you know us. You know all that we will say and do before we have said it or done it. You know the work that you have prepared for us to do. You have also prepared us for the work we are to do. We admit that we wish we knew clearly what you want us to do. We also know that finding a vocation is part of the journey of faith, involving trust and small steps of obedience. Recall for us the important skills and experience you want us to use. Give us insight to our gifts and passions. Make our hearts burn for the need that you want us to meet. Grant us a sense of peace when we discover the vocation you have placed in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.